They'll be happy. So if you have a Bible, you can open it. Yep, we're in Psalm 133. So we're going to do, we have one more week after this in the summer of Psalms as we talk about, um, as we look at our final Psalm of Ascent. And then after that, we've got a few messages um, that are kind of like on their own. And then um, as kind of everyone's kind of coming back from all being gone and all the stuff that craziness that happens over summer and stuff, we'll be jumping back into Romans 12 and picking up our series on that, which I'm very excited about because we spent a long time in Romans 1 through 11. And so um, this morning we're looking at Psalm 133 as Steve read, and I want to read it to you and we're going to just jump right into it because there's, there's a lot that this has for us in the church today. I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have it. Um, Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This psalm of ascent begins with these words, it is good. It is good. The first verse that we read here simply says this, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This word good is the same word that we see in Genesis. It's the same concept that we really see talked about in Genesis in the creation account. When, uh, when we hear about God creating everything that we see uh, and God ultimately calls it good. Good means things are as they're intended to be. They're the way that God intended them to be. He created stuff. He stepped back and looked at it and said, this is good. This is is how I want it to be. So here in this psalm, we read about the same concept, right? God being pleased when he steps back and looks at a thing. And so then the question is, of course, what is it that makes God so happy, that makes him so satisfied when he looks at something? Uh, Is it, uh, it is good, how good, behold, how good and pleasant it is when people obey the Lord doesn't say that. Behold how good and pleasant it is when people accomplish great things in the name of the Lord. doesn't say that. Behold how good and pleasant it is when churches grow bigger. Behold how good and pleasant it is when buildings get built. Behold how good and pleasant it is when people give sacrificially. Behold how good and pleasant it is when everyone lifts their hands at the same time in the same song. Finally, one day it happens. How good and pleasant it is. Doesn't say that. How good and pleasant it is when all the children obey all the parents and move out at the right time and don't come back, right? No. What it says here is how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You see, in Genesis Two, we actually read something very interesting in the creation account. We read that God creates man, and then he steps back and looks, and he says it isn't good for man to be alone. That's actually really important, that 
prior to sin coming into the picture, God would step back and say something isn't good. Well, that's weird, right? Uh, How does that work? How does that happen? It's because it was incomplete. That God had a plan that was bigger than what existed at that point. And so he couldn't step back fully and say this is good because it wasn't all that I intend for it to be, my creation. And it was not until we read that God creates woman from man and gives them something together that we call community or union that God finally steps back and says this is good. Why? Why is that so important? Uh, We read in Scripture that God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which means that even though God has existed forever before all things, he was able to exist and still be in a relationship with himself, in community with himself, never just solitary. And that's really important. So community, people being together, who God has made, is so important to him that when it's not happening, he says, this is not my design. This is incomplete. Completeness is good. God is pleased, the psalm tells us, when his children are getting along. You're like, I know that. Uh, The first account we have of siblings in scripture ends in murder. You're like, I know that too. I know where that could come from. The first account of, uh, of siblings in scripture ends in murder over who's doing a better job at pleasing God, even. Pleasing the person in authority over them. And if you have children, you know how good it is when they get along. We had a fight in our house yesterday. I was in the backyard. I just heard the rumblings, the shouting, the kind of things begin. And then it built to a crescendo. And uh, basically, uh, Ellie walked in. Uh, One kid was uh, in a box, uh, a cardboard box of some kind, kind of walking around. The other kid was chasing that kid with a pair of scissors, and there was some screaming, and somehow while in the box, they were able to inflict some serious harm on the one with the scissors, which is kind of impressive, really, when you think about it, but don't tell them I said that. It's a very common situation you get in when you have children where you walk in the room, and you're like, I don't have, I have no idea how to decode what's going on here. And they immediately begin telling you, here's what they did, here's what they did, here's what happened. And the debate was, were the scissors intended to cut the box as a way of teasing and saying, uh, I want to use the box now, and so I'm going to cut it, and then you won't get to use it the way you want? Or were the scissors intended for something much worse, right? And as we began to try to decipher this and get to the bottom of it and eventually just gave up hope and punished everybody, which is usually a pretty safe thing to do in that situation, you recognize these moments where you just go, what I want really is not to get to the bottom of every individual disagreement, is not to have our house be a court of law where we're constantly punishing the evildoer and identifying the the one who's right and making sure damages are paid, but instead it is a place where we can just get along. How good, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This passage is talking about the people of God, the Israelites, as they head to the holy city and as they're they're there, basically, uh, this one, the one we looked at last week, the one that we're looking at next week, really have to do with, these are the songs that people would say as they're finally upon the holy city, as they're there and they're worshiping God. And as they're gathered amongst one another, they're singing to themselves, they're singing to each other, behold how good and pleasant it is to God when his children, when his brothers dwell in unity. And we could say brothers and sisters, really, because it's talking about the people of God. When these people are getting along, that's very good and pleasing 
to God. We, we, when we talk about this concept of, of unity, uh, one of the key passages that we look at that helps us understand what it looks like, we, we looked at this as a church about a year ago when we did a series on, on unity, and, uh, and it comes out of Ephesians chapter 4. You read this in Ephesians 4, Paul writes to the church, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What we talked about when we looked at this passage a year ago was that the bonds of peace literally are like shackles. They're like handcuffs. That when you decide that you need to be at peace with other people, you are going to choose to limit things that you could do, could say, ways that you could behave simply for the sake of having peace with other people. And uh, Paul explains what that peace is probably going to look and feel like. He explains that it involves humility, which is a lowliness of mind. A good way of thinking of humility is the way C.S. Lewis describes it when he says, uh, humility is not thinking less of myself, but it is thinking of myself less. So Christian humility is, I'm going to think of myself less than I think of you and then I think of others in the community. That will be a way that I will live in unity with the church. Gentleness, which says no matter how I think or how I feel or how I've been wronged, I will be one whose behavior is characterized as being gentle. And if you want to know what gentle is, think about holding a newborn baby. Okay, that's gentle. Let's just start there, right? Uh, Holding a newborn baby is as gentle as we are to be with other people in the community as we relate to them, as we interact with them, as we care about them. We're to be patient, which is a willingness to go slow, a willingness to slow down maybe some of our expectations of each other, to slow down the rate at which we maybe expect things to happen at the speed at which they happen in the outside world. Because Jesus uh, tells us that ours is a faith that looks a lot more like a mustard seed that starts very small and grows very big over a very slow amount of time. We tend to think of it as uh, people and things need to happen and change and be different uh, quickly. So patience is important for unity. Ultimately, Paul says love. We are to love. We are to love Try to work to actually love each and every person that we're in the community of God, in the church, in this body with. What we read here is about, uh, in this psalm, in the first verse, is about the priority of this. And that's what's important. We read again and again in Scripture this simple concept that unity comes first. Unity comes first before other things. We read about how frequently people write in Scripture about the need for the people of God to be united, and they write more about that than the stuff that we get divided over, and that's important. Unity comes first, and it pleases the Lord because it brings completion to his creation. How do we have unity? We read about it at the second part of that verse in Ephesians, in that passage in Ephesians. Uh, what we read about is, uh, is this. There's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's over all, through all, in all. That we are united by what we have in common spiritually 
in God. We follow the same Jesus, the same spirit dwells within us and will actually connect us with one another as it's shaping and molding us and empowering the things we do. We have one hope that we look forward to and that we live in anticipation of. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, It is these things that we have in common that bind us together in such a way that we can now treat each other a certain way regardless of all the other differences that we have. These things bring us unity before anything else, and that's important. We read about what happens, what it's like to be a community that experiences this kind of togetherness. And we read this in the next verse of our psalm, verse 2, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now we read this and we go, that's not exactly what I would use to describe something nice. You're describing maybe the grossest thing I've ever heard, right? Uh, Oil being poured over a person's head. Aaron was a priest amongst God's people. He was very well known. He was very respected. He was was a, a real early priest, the early priest. And when Aaron was consecrated, when he was kind of officially given the job and empowered by God to do it before the people, the way that they symbolized this was they dumped oil all over him. Okay, it wasn't a little thing on the forehead. It wasn't a little bit on the top of the head. No, it was so much oil that it covered his face. I mean, you want to talk about like pretty vivid here, right? It's dripping down his beard, getting into the collar, going over it all the way down his robe. The more they do, you're like, no, 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 no. Don't need to detail because all I know is I don't want that happening to me, right? That sounds like something that happens on like a Nickelodeon game show. 20 years ago. The oil that would cover the priests symbolized them being consecrated to the Lord, which means set apart for God's use. And so when people are united together, we have become qualified to be used by God. The Bible tells us this. It says God can work through you if you are working together. What the psalmist is celebrating is the fact they're basically saying how good and pleasant this is, this unity that God's people experience because he can use them now. He can work with that. He can work with this. If he has this with us, he can work with us. The Bible says God can work with you if you're working together. What would a priest be without the consecration, without the oil that's poured over them, without God actually saying, I've chosen you and I'm going to work through you? Can you imagine what that would be like? Just a person going around doing God's work, right? Accomplishing things for God, even speaking on God and God's behalf, without God actually giving them the job. Could you imagine what that would be like? I think we experience that quite a bit in the world in which we live. Um, what, what we're hearing is that in order to be, you know, you've got the job. 
God's empowered you. He set you apart and said, I'm going to use you now. Unity is what God needs in order for us to be able to be used. But this image goes even further than this, because in light of 1 Peter, which we read about in the New Testament, um, we read that we are all, each and every Christian, is a royal priesthood, meaning that each one of us is a priest now, and a priest is a bridge between God and men. A priest brings people to God and brings God to people. And we've been talking last few weeks about God's drawing us to him, he's drawing us to him. And what a priest does is a priest is a part of that process. God works through these people to draw you closer to him and to make himself more known to you. You, my brothers and my sisters, are the priests that God uses to bring himself to me more and to draw me closer to him. You, my brother and sisters, are the priests that God uses to work in my life and to help me work in the lives of other people. And if I think I'm going to find God by getting away from people, that's not very biblical. If I think I'm going to find God from getting away from the community of the church, then I'm wrong. Because that's not what we read about here. Why do we choose as often as possible to be together in our faith? Because we see this at play. Why do we choose to meet in small groups week in and week out as we discuss these very passages? Sharing life with one another, praying for one another, being there for one another. And why do we try to continue doing that as we go through all the stages of life, whether we've been a part of the church for a long time or whether we're brand new? Why do we work to do that? Because we see that God uses these relationships as he's active and working in our lives. Why do we study the Bible together in groups? Uh, Because we find this very same thing at play. God can work through you if you're working together. God can work in the midst of and is working in the midst of this community if we're working to be unified together rather than allowing things to pull us apart. You see, this is what the Bible says, but what the world would say is this. God can work through people who look and act like me. And I think this is where the flesh, the the sort of natural fallen part of us, wants to pull us over the course of our walk with God. God can work through people, absolutely, if they're the people I choose. And I tend to choose people who kind of look and act like me. God can work through and with people in my life if they follow all the same rules that I've decided that I care about the most. God works through people who all look like me. How much of life really at the end of the day is like picking teams for kickball, right? How often are we just going like, all right, I want you, I want you, I don't want you. I'm sure somebody else will. That's fine, but not me. I want you, I want you, and I want you, right? Or the real question, if we're honest, is how much of life are we even still picking teams for kickball? And how long did we decide the team got formed about 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago? And we are now good with that. 
God will use the people that I am the most comfortable with, that I am the most familiar with, that I have been with the longest, or that I've simply chosen individually to bring together. We live in a world in which uh, we, we believe in building community around the things that we have in common. We are all kinds of people with these shared interests, and those things often dictate the groups of people that we want to spend our time with, associate with, relate to, and connect with. And we do that uh, because we kind of have a bit of an issue with the concept of diversity. But Christian community is diverse. It's more diverse than that. And what it's also doing is it's, it's growing me. Because the other thing that I think we tend to like is we kind of like this idea of getting better although not necessarily changing. Getting better, but not necessarily growing if it means going in maybe a different direction than I was already going in my heart or in my life or in the habits that I have. You see, without the diversity the church brings us, we become isolated in the communities that we build for ourselves. The groups we're a part of, over time, get smaller and smaller and smaller, and we find ourselves in a very small circle of people that looks so much like us, it's scary. And that's not really good for us, especially from when the Bible describes what real community is. The world's community also says that um, people who act like me, and what I mean by that is I mean uh, they, uh, they care about the things that I'm most passionate about, or I've kind of picked my rules and they've picked similar rules and they're the ones that we identify with and connect with the most. The idea of what it means to be holy, to be good, to be righteous, is one of the things that divides Christian communities more than anything else. Fights over theology, fights over behavior, fights over rules, fights over things that are non-essential, that are elevated to the position of essential, are one of the biggest causes of disunity in the church. As our leadership team here in our church uh, meets and we talk through things, one of the things that we talk about is the difference between things that are essential and the things that are non-essential because it helps us understand the stakes of what we're discussing and it helps us understand what it means to show the amount of grace that Christ calls us to show while not obviously compromising truth and what matters. And I don't know that we, ask, that we make those distinctions maybe very often, especially when it's something that we're really passionate about. These were the two biggest sources of disunity in the Old Testament. I mean, back then, like, like being good, doing the right thing, there was this thing called the covenant. People were pretty highly motivated to be good. Uh, in fact, the belief was like, if you were not behaving a certain way according to the law, if you were not living out the law in such a way, uh, the crops would dry up, the rain would stop coming, the wombs would be barren, uh, lots of bad things would happen, the enemies would come in, it would not be held off. People had a tremendous amount of motivation at the time that this psalm is being written to care about the right kind of life being lived. And it is in the midst of that which probably led to a lot of strife, that the psalmist is saying how good it is when we can all come together despite these different things that we have priority over in our lives, in our own hearts, in our own minds, and say, let us be united together in the things that are essential, in the things that matter the most. We can do this because our community is built around 
something that applies to all of us that is bigger than our own individual interests. We come together here, all ages, all life stages, some single, some married, some with kids, some with dogs, different education levels, different interests, some like sports, some don't, some follow more rules than others, some are Democrats, some are Republicans, some are gamers and quilters, some are exhausted moms who have a hard time relating to people who are not exhausted moms, and some are homeschoolers and some are public schoolers, some are white collar, some are blue collar. We're not particularly great at racial diversity in the church in America, but we're pretty good with a lot of the other diversity. And we do have a more diverse community than other groups that you see outside of the church. And the reason for that is because our unity is in something that is not all of these identity type things. It is in what Paul lists off. One God, one hope, one, one, one spirit, one baptism. So we read this as one of the benefits is that, is that God can use us. If we remain united, if we remain together as community, the other thing we read is this in verse 3. It is like this good, this good unity of the brothers. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Mount Hermon was a 9,000-foot mountain located just north of Israel in the Lebanon range. Anyone who has ever slept overnight in a high alpine region knows Dew is an issue. You wake up and you're wet. And normally you wake up and you're wet. You're like, this is awful, right? But in this case, you're like, uh, hopefully this was expected. Because what happens in that environment, that hostile environment, is that every single morning, God brings his mercies to us through water, which is the thing that all life was built on in the place where these people talked. They often looked at the concept of do, looked at the concept of the things that come every day that we know will come each day, no matter what else happens in life. And those things are God's way of showing us that he will continue to come and he will continue to do things and work no matter what happens. This heavy dew, which was characteristic of each new dawn on these slopes of this mountain, it extended the imaginations of these people. They thought of fresh and nurturing on dry, barren countryside. It communicates a sense of freshness, of like fertility, anticipation of growth that is going to happen. When we get around a group of people for a long time, they can begin to look pretty one-dimensional to us, I think. We reduce people to being a certain way. We think God's probably not going to do anything new with them, right? We also begin to think that if God's going to do anything new in our lives, it won't be through those people. It'll probably be through some other ones. And when this happens, community grows stale. We don't see it as a place where God can bring life to us again and again. When we see people this way, We've chosen to act and live as though God himself doesn't even exist. 
Because what Scripture tells us is that this is not how it works with God. Scripture tells us that God's mercy is new every morning, that every day God intends to reveal himself to us and draw us to him more. The Bible tells us, and this is important, that God is still changing and growing you and I. The Bible tells us that when we are unified, that there will continue to be life happening. And we can look forward to new life happening even if we've been together for a long time. And that's like a crazy concept to us. We tend to think that it stops working that way. And so we go, where can I go where life will be happening? Where can I go where things are more uh, like me or maybe people are changing more quickly or things are different, the grass is greener? And he says the grass will continue to be green as God brings the dew, as he shows up and is present in this place, which is why we're told in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient, that it is long-suffering, that love holds out hope. It always hopes. It always perseveres. What that means is that love looks at others and says, I believe that God isn't done with you yet. And that means God's not done using you in my life yet. And he might not be done using me in your life yet. We must refuse to label each other as one thing or another thing. We refuse to predict our brother's behavior, our sister's growth. Each person in the community is actually unique. Each is specially loved. Each is particularly led by the Holy Spirit of God. How can I presume? How can I presume to make conclusions about anyone? How can I pretend to know your worth? How can I pretend to know your place? God is still changing and growing you and I as we live together in unity, which is why we can continue to live together in unity and trust that God will continue working and reshaping us. The world, on the other hand, simply says this. People don't change, so just move on. Just accept that's the way this person is. Except that's the way this group of people is. Except that's the way people who say comments like that are. People who make posts like this online are. People who believe, I can't believe they believe things like this are. People don't change. So I'm just going to move on. I'm going to move on from them. Or I'm going to move on from the place. And what the psalmist tells us is they say how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity because of this. I think that when we look at what community looks like in Scripture, what unity really looks like in Scripture, I think we have to recognize something about the way unity works in the culture in which we live today, and we are a part of that culture, and it is a part of us whether we like it or not. You see, the way that we handle, even to experience disunity, is simply this. We leave. 
We live in a society of choice, of options. And I'm not just talking about the church that we attend. I'm talking about the people that we associate with even in the church that we attend. You see, what we do is when it begins to get difficult, instead of uh, the way disunity usually looks is us beginning to separate and isolate ourselves from one another. And often it does mean us simply saying, God is no longer at work here, and so he will be at work somewhere else. We say, uh, uh, I, I really grow and I, and I really am encouraged and I really learn by this specific group of people that I love having unity with and I've loved having unity with for a while. And that's who God's going to use, and that's what God's going to use. But that's not really the biblical description of what this looks like. I think for some of you today, even, you might be hearing this, and rather than uh, the message from the psalmist is that you need to work on like, what it means to be really unified, it's really just the question of being a part of a community to begin with. Saying, like, I'm actually really willing to step into this uncomfortable thing called community with other people. As much as I would like to believe that I can find God more easily when I get away from people. I can tell you, as a pastor, who's talked to a lot of pastors over the last few years, that's not what happened. When we all got away from each other, when we all had time to ourselves, when we all got to go, what is this going to look like just for me right now? It didn't look like that. And we actually experience what it looks like when we struggle to find ways to make this kind of unity and community happening. I'm not saying that it all went away because of circumstances in life, because we, ex we, we know that some of the churches that experience the greatest degree of unity are churches in countries where it is illegal to even gather and worship and find ways to do it anyway. What I'm saying is that I think for us, the challenge, for many, for some at least, the challenge is to even be willing to step into this to begin with how good and pleasing it is to have this, to trust that if we can work to be unified with one another, that if we can work to not put each other in boxes, that if we can work to actually approach this community as though God were alive in the midst of it, rather than the way we kind of have to approach everything else in the outside world or the way that everyone else tells us to approach it, which is just assume not God's not going to do anything and act as though he won't, then you'll know what you need to do, and then God maybe will show up. Who knows? But don't plan on it. Let's pray.